The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Just having touched on Middle Ages and Thomas Aquinas and his natural theology, his arguments for the existence of God and negative theology, symbolical theology, mystical theology, and natural theology. Now, I'm doing this partly because we must cover the ground more rapidly if we're going to get down to date. Now, what we have been saying so far, we is dealing with so far is the form matter scheme of Greek philosophy and Roman Catholicism making a synthesis with this form matter scheme which is we shall call the medieval synthesis we can also call this essentialism because you see the Greek idea was that by logic, by reason, you could get the essence of things, reality, the way Socrates was trying to get the essence, what is justice, regardless of what God and men or men say about it. Now, that means the aim was to see exhaustively what reality is. You must not live by revelation. You must not have God tell you what is it. Here I am. I'm telling you what Philadelphia is like. But pretty soon you take the plane to Philadelphia and say, I want to see what Philadelphia is regardless of what Van Til said about it. I want to see be independent. Well, that's an awfully poor illustration because you can go there as well as I can. But now God happens to be the only one that does know. He's the only one in the nature of the case that can tell you what it is. Isn't it so? Now... You come to my house, and here's the McGee closet. And I know just exactly what's in the McGee closet. I don't even know, really. <laughs> uh, there's the broom, and there, there's the whisk broom, and there's the wastebasket, and a few others. And but if you came there, you wouldn't know. I, you'd be dependent on my telling you. Now, that's a poor illustration, because you can open that door, and you could investigate. But God, you can't open the door into the being of God, into the essence of God, and say, now, God, I'm going to explore you. And after I have explored you, I've looked through every corner, then I'll get out, and then after that, you don't have to tell me anymore. If you came to my house, 16 Rich Adams, that's the address, by the way, 60, and Adams 3, 3, 1, 2, 5, 16 Rich Avenue, Erdenheim, Pennsylvania. All right? Suppose the gang of you gang up on me, and you come there, and you take over the place, which you could easily do, and you could ramsack, uh, go through the whole house, and you'd know pretty soon as much about it as I do, or you'd know more about it, because you'd put your junk into it. Don't you see? And, I mean, not you fellas. <laughs> You don't have any junk. <laughs> all, all nice things. Well, you'd put all your nice things out. You'd put my junk out. 
very well. But in the case of God, the God of the scriptures, don't you see, he is self-contained. He can't be screwed open. And he doesn't spring a leak, and he hasn't sprung a leak. There's no oozing out of his essence. And the Greeks said, God has oozed out. All flows out of all is one first, and then it all oozes out, and then we have proliferation of the same being. And there is, here's the essence. And it, it leaks out over there, and it leaks out over there. A few years ago in northern Minnesota, uh, the soybean place, uh, one huge uh, contraption, huge tanks of soybeans, oil, they burst, and they went all over the river. And the ducks swam in that soybean, and they got their wings full, and they weren't ducks anymore. At least they couldn't swing anymore. Now, that's the way you see on this basis, the universe is just is oil that's oozed out of the big oil, soybean oil barrel. And I'm desperately trying to get you to see what the difference is. Now, then God is still transcendent on this basis. He's the original oil barrel. But, and he's eminent in here because what's here is of the same substance, don't you see? It's the same substance distributed. And then somehow finally gets all collected again and you sort of fix up the tank again and you've got it all in again and the ducks can swim in the water again. Now, don't you see, it all goes out of the one, it all returns to one. Now that's Karl Barth's theology as we shall see. God is free to turn into the opposite of himself. He is free when he has turned into the opposite of himself to take all men up into his being with himself again. Well now, here we are. That was Greek thinking. Here comes in. Here comes Christianity, the two serpents, Christ Jesus, who says, I am the Son of God. Then what do the Pharisees say? You blaspheme. Greek philosophy is right. Oh, no, they said Moses is right. But what they meant was they had misinterpreted Moses in terms of the same sort of monotheism that Greek philosophy had. The Lord thy God is one God. It is reality is one principle and there cannot be a manifestation of that principle in the phenomenal world and therefore you blaspheme when you say that you are one with the father don't you see they said he blasphemed mind you just for saying the simple truth of the matter well now you see he said the jews blasphemed and he they said he blasphemed it's a question of who blasphemes well that is the difference here now here comes then uh, the original Adam and Eve introducing the autonomy of man and the individuation by chance or pure contingency and abstract universalism. Stringing the beads yourself, even though the beads have no holes in them. Very well. Then comes, in modern times, that point of view is carried on now very definitely back by Descartes, who says, cogito ergo sum, ergo sum. Now, set over against him, a certain Frenchman, I wish he had been a Dutchman, his name was John Calvin. There was also another John, John Wesley. Now you see they have the Johns in common, but they have the Johnniness in common, otherwise they're quite different. 
but by this time, I'm so happy to believe in... I was in Boston School of Theology, Personalism, and they are Wesleyan Methodists, you know, but they don't believe anymore what Wesley believes. They believe what Immanuel Kant believes. So by this time, I wish they would believe what Wesley believed. <laughs> don't you see? Even if they don't want to believe what Calvin believes. Now, Descartes says, Cogito ergo sum. I don't take anything from anybody on authority. He's just the way Socrates said. I want to know the essence of the thing by myself. Now, he says, I don't put much stock in everything that has been said in the past. I want to get a fresh start by starting from myself. I know I am. I know I exist. I can try to think myself away, but I can't succeed even when I doubt it is I who doubt, or when I think, it is I who think. Now, therefore, he starts proving himself, I, I, I think. Now, don't you see that is the exact diametrical opposite of what Christ said, I am the Son of God. I can say I and make it stick, said Christ. Descartes says, I can say I and make it stick. Now, that's just precisely the opposite, don't you see? It is to who's blaspheming or not. Well, Descartes was the one that blasphemed, if you want to put it that way. Now, just forget about the word. That is to say, he says that man can know himself without the question of whether he is a creature or whether he is a sinner. Now, shall we take this man, John Calvin? He has carried on Augustine back of him who had carried on Calvin back of him. And Augustine had been against the Pelagians, in which Pelagius had said, I think I am free, and salvation is what I can do on the basis of my good works. And so Augustine had opposed Pelagius, because in Pelagianism, the Greek naturalistic philosophy was usurping the place of Christianity was getting into Christianity, was swallowing it up, and God was using Augustine in marvelous fashion to save the principles of Christianity. Well, now, here's John Calvin, here's Descartes and Calvin. They are now, you might say, the great opponents of one another, the way Augustine and Plotinus and Pelagius after Plotinus. Now, Calvin and Descartes, what's the difference? The two-circle theory and the one-circle theory. John Calvin, page one institutes. You ought, if you can't read more in Calvin than one page, please read it at least one page. You can afford that, can't you? I ask my poor Armenian students, if there are some as a rule, can't you read at least one page in Calvin? Well, they generally are willing to do that, just for courtesy, and so then they are face to face with this question, that on page one it says man is what he is because he is what God says he is, as a creature of God and as a sinner before God. And now that he, if he knows himself, he knows that he is a creature, that he doesn't behave as such, that he is a sinner, that he's trying to hold under the truth and unrighteousness, the truth about himself as being a sinner, as deserving eternal punishment, that alone he can be, can be saved by if Christ redeems him, stretches down, redeems him by shedding his blood on Calvary's cross and sends his Holy Spirit to regenerate him. Now that's, you see, a complete contrasting interpretation 
of, and that's not of the human self alone, that involves a complete contrasting interpretation of every fact of the universe. Don't you see? Because every fact of the universe is related to this and is dependent upon it. Now, therefore, what Descartes actually has in this innocent-sounding thing, and of course the textbooks again on philosophy are saying, oh, well, here's a man who's starting off modern philosophy. He wants a principle of absolute certainty. He doesn't want any guesswork anymore. He wants to have, he wants to do like a dentist that, that drills into the, into the tooth and gets every bit of decay out of it. He wants solid ground and sound ground. Now, he has it, Dwama Pusto, said the old Greek. Give me something in which to stand. Well, now Descartes is standing on himself. That is, he's standing on a drop of water in an infinitely bottomless ocean. Now, he is this, he is, he's not a creature of God. He doesn't pretend that man is a creature of God, don't you see? He doesn't pretend, and nobody knows that he's a creature of God unless he also knows that he's a sinner against God. There are no theists unless there be Christ, they be Christian theists. There's no one who worships God truly. No one comes to the Father, says Jesus, but by me. And that's absolutely true. And therefore there are no, oh, there are bare theists, there are general theists. Mohammedans are theists. Dr. Swamer once lectured about theism and talked about how wonderful that the Mohammedans at least were theists and you had that much to build on. And there was a missionary of the Dutch Reformed Church, I forget his name, I was a student of Princeton. He had the nerve to come into the, into the chapel of Princeton Seminary in the olden days. At present you can say anything you please there. But in the olden days you had Gerardus Voss there, you had Jasper Wister Hodge there and others, and to come into that chapel and to say that Mohammedanism and Calvinism are identical as far as their determinism is concerned is, of course, flagrant misrepresentation. Mohammedanism has a pagan principle of abstract unity. Allah, the Lord thy God, is one God, and Mohammed is his prophet. Well, everything depends on who's the prophet. God is one God all right, but Christ is his prophet. And he's not just a prophet, a man, but he is one with God. He is God. And he is therefore, therefore you are speaking in that case of the triune God. Well now, this is where how modern philosophy gets off on the wrong stove. Now, it is carrying on, therefore, the history of Greek thinking. Here is Socrates who says, I want to know what the truth is in terms of myself and Plato and Aristotle. Here is, and that's why Wendelbant is so anxious to get Augustine in that line of descent, don't you see? He'd like to say, well, Augustine, when he said, see, follow or assume, all this, the textbooks on philosophy will tell you, that is really the same thing, mit ein bisschen anthen Morton, with a few different words, that Descartes said, though I doubt and though I be mistaken, it is I that doubt and it is I that I am mistaken. Well, they, 
Abraham Kuyper made an expression one time, if two people use the same words, they do not necessarily say the same thing at all. Well, that's always true. Now, Augustine is in this line. He's in the line of Paul, and then after that, Calvin. There's where Augustine belongs. Here's where they like to put Augustine, claim him, because he's a great man, he's a great genius, and he talks about inwardness. And they want the spirit of inwardness. Today, everything is the spirit of inwardness. The confession of 67 is built on the spirit of inwardness instead of on the gospel. Now, here you have the spirit of self-sufficient inwardness built into the starting point of modern philosophy. Now, and now then, oh, you all, you all, you get the ontological proof. Anselm developed, did he not, the modern ontological proof? And they say, look, uh, I mean, Anselm did back of that. Now, Anselm is certainly in this line. Now, I'm sorry that Anselm developed that miserable proof, because it isn't a proof. I mean, as a, and Augustine did the same thing when he said, even though it were true that God doesn't exist, it is true that it is God that doesn't exist, and therefore God does exist. Well, in similar fashion, Anselm developed the so-called ontological proof. Now, fortunately, he virtually took it back by saying, fides quiet intellectum, I start with faith, and Augustine started with faith. I just want to understand what my faith is. And if you take it that way, then you're not proving the existence of God. Then you're trying to understand your own faith. But the way it is usually presented is this way. Look, we have Augustine over there, and he had his ontological proof, and we have Anselm over there, and then we have Descartes. And then we're on our way, and then we get Kant pretty soon, more inward still, and then we have everything that's modern. Now, don't you see? This is a total misrepresentation of the facts. You have Paul, and you have Augustine, and then you have Anselm, and then you have Calvin. Oh, all kinds of details that are not right and not true to the scriptures. Who hasn't got that? But essentially, we're on the line of the truth. And after this, you get pretty soon, you get Abram Kuyper involving, and you get Fallenhoven and Doeyware. You get Hodge, and you get Dabney. Now, I better be sure to get Dabney in there. And uh, Gerardo. Who else do you want in there, Mr. Smith? No, he, we don't want him. <laughs> who else? Oh, Thornwell. Thornwell. How could I get, forget Thornwell? And, no, we're not putting him in either. <laughs> all right. All right, now, all, in, all joking aside, you see, I have a hard time to keep you fellas serious. <laughs> I think we have to have a little humor in the midst of all the seriousness of life. Uh, now, we, what we now must needs do if we are to be epistemologically self-conscious, I heard that expression around here somewhere, whatever it means. Uh, if we are epistemologically self-conscious, then we must know that this is what we are now facing, the way Augustine faced Plotinus, 
don't you see? And Augustine faced the anti-Pelagians. That's how we are now facing cogito ergo sum. Now then, this develops into various ways. First you have pretty soon Locke, John Locke. Now he has an essay on human understanding and he says, you are right, Father Descartes, in starting from the self, all right, but you are wrong in thinking that the self has within itself a priori light and that you can say that, that you can deduce from that point all kinds of truths and say, I am a thinking thing. What am I? I exist. What am I? I am a thinking thing. And I can start from myself and I can deduce the existence of God. And then there's a universe over against me. And I try to get in touch with that universe, but there is a great gulf betwixt me as a thinking thing and the facts over there of space and time. Now, says Locke, I start the way you start, but I want to not think of the mind as having innate in it all kinds of principles of truth. That's too platonic. We must start with the mind as with a camera, an open blank. We open the shutter and the facts write themselves upon the negative and they just simply record. The mind does not contribute, it receives. And so the mind is a tabula rasa, a blank, like a blackboard on Monday morning. Somebody has washed it as it ought to be washed someday, we'll say, after Van Til has been scribbling on it for a week. Then the blackboards have to be washed. Well, then you have a tabula rasa, and then the facts just come in like that. And that's why you have objectivity, mind you, because you are not, the subject is not contributing it, making things subjective. And objectivity is supposed to lie in the fact that the facts are just the way they are, what they are, are just plunking themselves down on this. And here's the mind uh, receiving those things. And then somehow those facts get hooked into the mind. And then the mind has ideas that correspond. I have in my mind a replica of that thing out there. I have a concept, but there's the difficulty. By concepts, in my mind, I handle several of these percepts. I perceive this thing and that thing, all kinds of individual things, and I can't help but doing something with them, even though when I first receive them, I am passive and recipient. Nevertheless, when I want to predict, I want to say, look, this, the sun has rises in the east, and that will happen tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And I want to be able to predict that this airplane is going to go next Wednesday morning for Philadelphia and that that is a schedule and that that will stay put and it isn't going to be turned upside down. There isn't going to be any strike and there isn't going to be any turmoil or strike. Now, how can I? Well, I can, I arrange these things by concepts. That's the mind's ability. These things have no order in them. Now notice that they don't. That is to say, on this basis, they are not created and they do, are not what they are because they are 
what they are in the plan of God and therefore immediately expressive of the will of God and the purpose of God. For Descartes, the world's a grab bag. And in order to have objectivity for Locke, don't you see, you must not have a creator God. You must not have in the facts anything that already is characteristic of the purposes of God. If the, if the facts have any characteristics of their own, they are just one and two. They're helter-skelter, and they're just there. They come out of the womb of chance. Some great giant from another planet has dumped them down here without order in them. Now, don't you see, that is going to be the problem that empiricism faces. They are trying to get objectivism by saying that the mind doesn't spoil the objectivity of the relationships of the facts. Now, there is no relation between the facts on this basis, don't you see? And consequently, there is no objectivity there. The, unless you have the Christian position, you have no order of nature, and science couldn't operate. Science, non-Christian scientists have to borrow or else steal the Christian conception of creation and of providence in order to have any order of nature. In other words, all modern science is based upon presupposes, though they do not recognize it, creation and providence and the Christian story, in other words. The fact of the, uni the, the universe is, in fact, what the Christian story says it is. Or it is chaos. Now, it isn't chaos, and that's why people who believe do not believe the Christian story can do all kinds of things in it and make all kinds of discoveries in it. And that's because the world is not what they say it is. Now, that's not enough by itself, but because the world is what Christians say it is. Here's this campus, and I can walk on it, and I can take that ladder there if I want to and climb up a tree. No, I can't either. I'm too stiff. But I could if I tried and if I were younger. But it's always a ladder that, well, they may have borrowed it for all I know. But I'm assuming that it belongs to this institution, don't you see? Now, I am welcome to take anything there is around it. They let me, mind you, alone in that house overnight there. Now, that's a terrific risk they're taking. And there, there are all kinds of things that will be missing after I leave. Then I'll get the reputation of having stolen all that stuff or uh, spirited away with it. Now, there's a few things I'd like to spirit away with there. For instance, a nice desk and a few details of that sort. But I can't get them in my suitcase. That's the trouble. Now, this is a grab bag theory of reality. Now, Berkeley goes one step further, and he says, Locke had, had spoken of innate ideas. Innate ideas. Now, what does that smell of? That smells of Platonism, the idea that man's ideas are divine ideas, and that they have, therefore, in them the same objectivity that the divine has in it, that man is participant in deity. I am a thinking thing. And you remember that Parmenides said that 
thought is legislative for reality and divine thought not only, but human thought, because human thought participates in divine thought. And therefore we can predict what reality must be because we have objectivity, knowledge of ourselves and of all the world, including God, by these ideas that are innate in us. If we just apply the laws of thought, the law of logic, the law of contradiction in particular, we will get to the existence of God and for certain. Now, Locke says, oh, don't be so enthusiastic, uh, Mr. Descartes, because after all there are space-time facts, and how can you legislate by thought about space-time facts? Don't you see that they are here by chance? And don't you see that you have to incorporate in your totality outlook of reality this element of chance in your, in your thinking? And how can you explain that these laws, these innate laws and the laws of logic, that they apply to the world of chance? Incidentally, that was one thing that Whitehead, the great mathematician, philosopher, theologian of a generation ago, just couldn't ever imagine how it was that these mathematical laws that he could concoct would in any wise fit onto this world. Well, he might well wonder. They wouldn't unless the Christian position were true, unless God had made the mind of man, has made the mind of man, and the facts for one another. On Whitehead's own position, he shouldn't expect that his mathematical formulas would in any sense have any bearing on the law, on the world, on the universe. Well. So here he says, Locke says there are no innate ideas, there are general ideas. Why general ideas? Well, because I have a cow and I have a chicken and I have a horse and I have all kinds of animals, and then I get the general idea of animal. Now I subtract that animality idea from the individual facts. They were not in the things. And so he has general ideas or universal ideas. But then Berkeley says, now, Father Locke, I am working in your tradition, of course, I agree with you against Descartes, there are no innate ideas, and that therefore the ideas that have come from ourselves, they come from within, they don't come to us from without. Uh, if they are not in us, the things come to us from without. But now, he says, we have no, strictly speaking, universal ideas. Okay. This is not a coffee break, gentlemen. Don't get the wrong, don't run off. Well, Berkeley goes one step further than did Locke. He says, well, now, Mr. Locke, you are still finding your universality in the general character of these ideas. But he says, actually, he says, there is no objectivity to be attained by those things that are outside of us because when they come into us, they are the same things to us as we perceive them. So he said, es percipi, to be is to be perceived. Now you see that this vaunted objectivity is getting pretty subjective in the case of Berkeley. To be is to be perceived by me. Now that is the logical working out, you see, of Descartes' 
cogito ergo sum, starting with man as the one who, in, to all intents and purposes, makes the things to be what they are for him, even though it is true that he cannot actually produce things. Of course, no human being can. But for us, and this is what Kant will say later, for us, for us, things are what they are because of the activity of our minds with respect to them. Now then we have the famous Hume who goes one step beyond. This is empiricism, as you know, over against rationalism, De, uh, Spinoza and, and Leibniz. We'll see in a minute. Now Hume says, look, uh, my friend Berkeley, what you, when you wrote your essay, that was perhaps the most, the finest thing that happened in the Republic of Letters. For many an, uh, many an era, he says, but, but even you didn't go far enough. You should have said that every percept, that is every sense experience, that when it comes into our minds, we don't have general ideas about them. Our mind doesn't generalize. All that we can say of our ideas, that they are faint replicas of the percepts. That's his uh, terminology. They are faint replicas of our of percepts. That is to say, in our mind, what comes to our mind, we start with Locke. The mind is a tabula rasa. And the mind the facts just come in like that. And that is supposed to guarantee their objectivity. But now what the trouble is, when they've come into the house, they are still as unruly as they were when they were outside. Actually, he says, we have only faint replicas of the percepts because don't you see what happened to us 10 years ago we now recollect by memory to be sure but we only have the faintest notion you remember Moses when he was on the mountain he was there alone and many years afterwards he recalled that experience but it was faint now I've been in the Orient and I remember certain things but certainly I unless I would look back into my notes I couldn't tell you in any detail it's all vague and indefinite so we get faint replicas and so for us there is no universal knowledge therefore I cannot predict I cannot say that the Sun will rise in the East tomorrow science cannot predict because for all I know it might rise anywhere. Now, even the West and the South and the North is too good for Hume because, you see, that still presupposes an order. But, you see, on this basis, there is no order in the universe. And the mind can produce no order in the universe. The mind is itself a product of that universe. It has also, as well as other things, sprung into existence <coughs> by pure chance. Now here we're already approaching modern existentialism and the position of a man like Sartre. Now, therefore, this brings predication into the ground. We now have beads. We have beads, but we have no holes in the beads. And we have no mind that can, has any principles of universality in it. The mind is not created in the image of God. And therefore, the mind cannot draw on the plan of God. It is not looking at the things in the light of the revelation of God through Christ. And consequently, it has no universality, no 
objectivity and therefore knowledge is impossible. Very well. This is a reductio ad absurdum of the position of modern philosophy in its starting point with Descartes in its cogito ergo sum, but not only of modern philosophy, but also of ancient philosophy, the Greek position. Descartes got it from the Greeks, from the medieval. The Greeks got it, of course, from Adam, and Adam got it from Satan, namely that the world is just there, and that for all you know, if you eat the, the forbidden fruit, what God says will happen to you will not happen to you, because nobody knows. And that's now, you see, said by Hume with a vengeance. And that's said to the scientist. Now, you've burned down the house of Christianity. If a man is on an ocean steamer, let's say, and we'll just say Randy is over there on the ocean steamer. Ah, he doesn't like the captain of the Queen Mary. And so he says, I got a nice wastebasket here and got a lot of waste paper in it. I'll just put a match to it. And he puts a match to the waste paper and the waste paper starts burning and the Randy gets out of the room. Meanwhile, of course, but his room is burning and the next room is burning. Pretty soon the whole Queen Mary is burning and the captain is burning. And that's just what Randy wants, but Randy is also burning. In other words, there is no way of being negative unless you're absolutely destructive of yourself. In other words, Hume has brought the absolute destruction upon himself. And don't you see? That's the denouement. That's the complete conclusion negatively of every form of non-Christian thinking that will not start with God and creation and redemption through Christ. Well, I'm thinking of Immanuel Kant all the while because he's going to fix this all up. But before we look at Kant, we have to now look at this other line, this other line of Descartes, and there you have the Dutch Jew Spinoza. Now, you know, Dutch, the Dutch Jew Spinoza is the great, great modern rationalist rationalist. He said, ordo et connexio idearum, idem est ordo et connexio rerum. Now, what does that mean? Well, I know that all of you except Dr. DeYoung understood that. <laughs> right? Order and connection of things. Ordo et connexio Rerum, or idearum, doesn't make any difference, I guess. Idem est, idem est, ordo et connexio rerum. Now, what does that mean? And why is that? Why do I take the trouble to write that out? Well, because this is Parmenides redivivus. Parmenides come to life. You remember that Parmenides said that. Human thought is legislative for reality. Human thought is divine. It can determine what can and what cannot be. Well, here was this miserable Dutch Jew. Now, he had been kicked out of the synagogue by the Jews. He wasn't orthodox enough. Now, you might think that's a pretty good idea, that they threw him out of the synagogue. It shows that they were these better than he. No, it doesn't show that they were any better than he. Their views are not better than those of Spinoza. 
basically, why should they be? But the thing I'm interested in now is that the idea of man's having innate ideas of ultimate reality, that man's ideas, concepts, are divine concepts and are therefore legislative for reality, carried that through the way he did more consistently than anybody else had done before him, certainly no less consistent than Parmenides had done, that meant the denial of space-time reality. That was the way to kill Christianity. That was also a way, of course, to kill the whole Old Testament. He was a Jew, and he believed the Old Testament, Aber, not in the historic sense of the term, but in a philosophical sense of the term, as he thought. And he would make this Jewish religion sensible to the cultural despisers of it, to the other Jews who couldn't believe it because they were philosophers. So he said, well, just think through this Cartesian principle. Kogel, start with man, and then say man is a thinking thing. And then when you say he's a thinking thing, that means he has in the power of thinking the power to legislate for the nature of all reality. And therefore the order of rerum, the order of things, is not only parallel to, is not only similar to, but is identical with things, the order and connection of my thinking, my concepts, as they logically follow one another, as they are implied in one another. The logical principle of implication is the same as the causal principle in the world of effectuation, rational implication and physical, logical implication and physical implementation are the same. Now there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, pure science, absolutely consistent, don't you see? And that's why he's such a fine fellow to look at. In other words, you can always learn more from the most consistent paganist. Now look, God can say, for me, the order and connection of things will be what I in my thinking, my ordering, now God has no connection, no following of one idea and another. But if you could say it of anybody, you could say it of God. God's ideas, his purpose, makes the things of this world to be precisely what they are. All right, now you wipe this out, the distinction between God and man. And here's man, here's Spinoza and his concepts. And God's concepts are all one, don't you see? And therefore, the order and connection of the things of this world, everything, is identical with the order and connection of my thinking, which is divine thinking. Thinking and being are identical. And if there's an order in the one, the order is identically the same as the other. Now, this is pure rationalism. And the textbooks will call this rationalism. But you remember that I was speaking about Adam and Eve, when they said that's listening to the devil, they said God cannot, God doesn't know what will happen. That's irrationalism. That's contingency. And this is pure determinism and rationalism. And that therefore irrationalism and rationalism always fit together. Now you say here you've got pure rationalism without irrationalism. 
No, you don't. I just said this is pure rationalism. Now I take it all back in the sense that I modify it by saying that even Spinoza, since as a matter of fact he is a human being, cannot legislate for ultimate reality. Obviously, the world isn't going to answer to what he thinks it ought to do. He can't legislate. He will be confronted with all kinds of factuality as he was and, his, and as he even in his ethics admits he is confronted with all kinds of factuality that he himself can't explain why they are what they are. They ought to be something different. They ought to be according to the rules of thought what I say they ought to be. But he finds they're recalcitrant, you see. In other words, now there haven't been many rationalists that are as good a rationalist, as pure a rationalist as Spinoza. But even Spinoza couldn't be an absolute rationalist. But at least he was about as absolute as you make him, and as anybody has ever been. This is the end of side one. Please flip the tape at this point. Now we'll go on to the next gentleman, which is, who is Leibniz. Leibniz. I'm glad he wasn't a Dutchman. It's, I saw Spinoza's home in Amsterdam. I guess you did too, Mr. Smith. You gentlemen that were there in Amsterdam, when they take you around see Amsterdam, they'll show you the famous Spinoza's home. Now, here you are, Leibniz, who was a joyman, and he said, ah, oh, my lieber Freund, you Dutchman, and he went to see Spinoza in Amsterdam, He's, and Leibniz was a learned genius, if ever there was one. But he says, you go too far, you go too far. That is to say, Basically, your right order and connection of ideas ought to be the same. But there is a contingency reality, and we've got somehow to make some sort of place for it. So let's not have an absolute distinction between concepts and percepts, so that you say by concepts we control everything, and by percepts we just gather together some things that aren't really what they are. You remember that Parmenides according to Plato, Parmenides was essentially right and said being, changeless being, of which there is absolute episteme and non-being and of which there is ignorance and here some sort of being of which there is only doxa, right opinion, guesswork. Now, he says, Plato was more right than you are. Now, I don't fall back on Platonism, but I do think that we ought to make a sort of differentiation between the divine mind as an absolute mind. If you knew the divine mind exhaustively, then you could say what you're saying, that all reality is what it must be according to laws of thought. But now here we are, and we're having percepts, and we're gathering new material, and after all, science does want to gather together new material. And so let's make a gradational distinction between percepts and concepts. Let's have perceit percept, petite perceptions, small perceptions and small concepts and growing universality. And uh, our individual existence is, a mon is, a, is like God's existence. God is the big monad, the Greek, who has all things in himself. We are monads, we, and the monads have no windows, 
in the sense that they have within themselves the power to reach to generate their own light they don't need light therefore I'm not an empiricist I'm not like Locke saying we have to have the door open all the time and the light coming in from the outside we have light within but then we are somehow in by pre-established harmony which is the idea of an all-conclusive all-inclusive plan of God not in the Christian sense of an actual creation and an actual oh, that we don't believe I don't believe that any more than you do Mr. Spinoza but there is some formal similarity between the notion of an all-comprehensive plan and a teleology a purpose you my friend Spinoza do away with all material teleology with all purpose for you everything is mechanistic and deterministic and I think we ought to introduce something more spiritual and something more teleological and we ought to see that the higher the spiritual is higher than the material and so he introduced a somewhat of a modification of Spinoza's position now any this is awfully inadequate as far as a summarizing the position of these men but what I'm interested in is having you see what is all happening here is the cogito ergo sum then we have empiricism and then we have rationalism they're both they both sprouted from the idea of human autonomy they, they were therefore based on the assumption that man is not a creature that there is no sin in the world that man has not fallen that there's no need of a Christ to redeem us in the biblical sense of the term there just is no place in either empiricism or in rationalism for the Christian position but they are at the same time that they allow no room for the Christian position that they don't start with the Christian position they also thereby kill all predication they kill science if you kill Christianity you kill science and you kill true philosophy don't you see they are this is a reductio ad absurdum in both directions here you have all beads no string here you have one string but no beads and yet you have to have if you're going to have a string of beads they have to string them and they have to string all of them I remember once in my class we had a young lady in class and she I was looking at you you're not wearing a string of beads are you that's too bad otherwise I'd ask you to give me and I'd clip them you see and then they'd roll all over the floor here and then all these gentlemen being courteous wanting to be they'd be on their knees right away collecting them all well that would be easy to do if you just had a couple hundred beads we'll say or five or six hundred but suppose you have an infinite number of beads and then who's going to pick them up and then there's no floor you see on which they fall they fall into the bottomless pit the abyss of the unrelated except that they can't fall because they couldn't get started falling they were already there to begin with now therefore predication is impossible here you have a blank mind not made in the image of God don't you see a blank blankety blank mind here you have a mind that is inherently divine it's got all the stuff in it sum foreign herein 
in advance, don't you see? Now, in either case, predication has been reduced to absurdity. Here you have the string, here you have the beads, never the twain shall meet. This is Kipling. Now, speaking. Now, Kant was going to do something about it. Kant said, Jawohl, Jawohl, Liebe Freund, Leibniz, I believe with you that the mind has within itself the organizing principle, and that's my basic conviction too. But I do not think that you should think of the mind as an enclosed box having all the facts within them, because then science is not possible because the idea of science includes the notion of discovering the new, adding facts. Science, to be sure, means that you have a body of knowledge, but it also means that you add daily to that body new discoveries. If you don't have a philosophy of reality that allows for the possibility of new discovery, then, of course, you don't have a proper philosophy. It's all right to have a system, but if the system contains, allows no, not for addition, you have to have somehow an open system. Now, how do you get that? Well, I know of no other way but simply taking your box away altogether and saying, look here, we get the facts where the empiricists got them. And therefore, my friend, uh, let's sit down together. Mr. Humes, you sit on that side of the table. Mr. Leibniz, you sit. And I want to see whether we can get a modus vivendi, a way of cooperation. You've been so antagonistic to each other, fundies and modernists. Let's see if we can't get things together and get working again. And so he says, uh, Mr. Hume, you were right. You are, you awoke me from my dogmatic slumber, he says. And I'm so thankful to you that you knocked on my door when I was deep in slumber. Don't you see? Now, he says, what we need, therefore, is to combine the notion of rationality, but not of rationalism, which is deductive, a priori deduction from an absolute existence, way Spinoza did, and deducing from it in advance all the facts that ever will be in the future. Let's have an open system. Let's collect the facts. Now, you must remember that Kant is not calling men back to the Christian religion. He shares with them, with the empiricists and the rationalists, the assumption that they had based their thinking upon, namely that of Descartes and of all non-Christian thinking way down through the Greeks since the fall of Adam, that man is autonomous. Now, that's the assumption of Kant's system, and that means that if he's going to cure the situation, all that he can possibly do is by rearranging things a little bit. Suppose that we're all in prison over here, and we would all like to get out, don't you see? And then we ask George, now George, you're a good jailbreaker, aren't you? You were a jailbird of some sorts, and you've got a good reputation. Get us out of here, George. But all that George can do is put me in that cell instead of in this cell. 
and he can put Mr. Smith in that cell instead of in that cell. Or he can maybe break open the walls of the cell so we get more freedom within the prison. But he can never get us out of prison. Now, Kant doesn't begin to open the prison doors because he is still basing his whole interpretation upon the assumption, the colossal, uncritical assumption, though his philosophy is called the critical philosophy, which is supposedly looking into the foundations of the thinking of empiricism and of rationalism, the presuppositions, die Bedingungen, die die Erfahrung möglich machen, he says, the presuppositions which make experience possible, that's what I want to see. But he, his own presuppositions are these, exclusively uh, built on autonomy and on brute factuality which he borrows from Hume and abstract logic which he borrows don't you see from Spinoza and from Leibniz now what then does he get by way of curing he's very thankful he says to Hume for having aroused him from his dogmatic what does he mean dogmatic well he says all thinking was dogmatic up to this time. Either you could be a rationalist or you'd be empiricist, and you could have arguments. But you were both dogmatic, just like on a game. You have certain rules that you have in common. You may be antagonists, but you are playing on the, according to the rules of one game. Well, here you were dogmatist. You accepted certain on a certain assumptions uncritically. Now, I want to make you epistemologically self-conscious. That is to say, I want you to look into the foundations of your thinking. Here's the floor. We sit on it comfortably because there are beams underneath this. Now, I know you could go underneath here and see them. But what are the beams underneath all experience? those beings that we don't see. What are the bedingungen, the presuppositions? Let's look into the foundation of that. Well, now, Dr. Doewert, in his magnificent work, points out that Kant is not looking into the real presuppositions. He is as uncritical as his supposedly dogmatic predecessors, the empiricists and the rationalists. Because nobody is critical except a Christian who is said to be the dogmatic one. Don't you see? We're always charged with being dogmatists and listening uncritically to what we have received from our parents and we swallow it. And a fellow like Van Til writes a little book, Why I Believe in God. He used to read the Bible, heard the Bible read in the old Dutch Christian Reformed fashion, morning, noon, and night through Leviticus, every chapter by chapter. I'm not advocating that. Now he's 72 years old and he still believes the same thing. Well, doesn't that show that the poor fellow has never read Kant and never heard about Plato and that he's never become acquainted with any of those things? Well, that's why we are called dogmatists. And yet we are the only criticists. We're only ones that really dare to look in the basement. Now, when you come into our house, we have three floors, and my wife is in charge of all three of them, and that's why they're very neat and clean. But when you come into the basement, I'm in charge there, and don't get into the basement. 
because things are in a mess. Now, don't you see? That's a lie, too, because my wife even gets in there <laughs> and won't let me have things the way I would like to see them in a mess. Now, but the point is, the deep adingungan, deep presuppositions. Now, we are actually saying, my dear friends, we don't claim to prove by empirical methodology or by rationalistic methodology or by a combination of those two, which is the methodology that was followed that followed Kant, 50 Schelling, and Hegel, and many others since, we'll see. We don't follow those. We don't try to prove Christianity by means of any of those methods. Woe betide if we do. Fundamentalism did. Boswell does. Clark does. Carnell did. And my good friends, new evangelical friends, still do, so most of them. But that's not the way the Bible actually tells you to do it. The Bible says, except what I tell you, Christ says, except what I say, because I say it. That's what he said to the scribes and Pharisees. He says, you think I blaspheme. I tell you, you experts and Moses and the prophets, that if you do not start with seeing me as the one of whom Moses and the prophets spake, you don't understand Moses and the prophets. You know all about the facts. You know Hebrew, and you know all kinds of things, but you don't know Moses and the prophets because they spake of me. Well, now, in this sense, we'll see this next time, what Kant says in detail, how he tries to answer empiricism and rationalism by his, what he calls, criticism. And that is supposedly looking into the foundations which make experience, which means that you can't prove any position without looking, without assuming foundations that are deeper than you can prove. In other words, you have to presuppose principles that are too deep for you to prove. It is in terms of those unproved principles that experience becomes intelligible, though not comprehensively intelligible. Now, my point is that Kant is not thus offering you the proper presuppositions, but that Christianity does, and that more specifically, not Romanism, nor Protestant, nor Evangelicalism, or fundamentalism, but simple historic reform Christianity, using apologetical principles that spring from its theology of God controlling whatsoever comes to pass, that then you have basic presuppositions in terms of which experience becomes intelligible. And if you don't work on those presuppositions, then you have beads that have no holes in them. And then you have a string that is infinite, neither end of which you can find. And you can't string two beads that way. In other words, the, on, the, the alternative to the Christian position is absolute destruction of the meaning of life. <laughs>